When a child is diagnosed with a serious, life-threatening illness, the entire family is affected. These stories from those families, especially when faced with challenging decisions, will move and inspire you. The parents are courageous and resilient in their determination to keep their family strong. Courageous Parents Network promotes their insights so that others may also find hope and strength. Welcome to the Courageous Parents Network podcast series. Today, the landscape for families of children diagnosed with rare and fatal conditions looks very different than it did even a decade ago. New therapies and treatments are here, including gene therapy. But what do the innovations mean for parents who may be faced with the opportunity to enroll their child in an early-stage clinical trial, which is, at its core, an experiment? In this episode, CPN's Blythe Lord, whose daughter did not live to see the new possibilities, talks with mom Don Mariano who will be facing such a decision for her baby daughter. Hello, Don. Good afternoon. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me as part of Courageous Parents Network's exploration of clinical trials and what they mean to families. Thank you. We could just begin by your telling me about your daughter, who she is, how old she is, so my daughter's name is Vale, Vale Rose. She is about 15 and a half months old now. She was diagnosed with Canavan disease two days before her six-month birthday. So it's been about nine months now of navigating this new journey of our lives. She's amazing. She's the cutest little girl in the world. <laughs> um, but she's doing well. You know, we obviously have our challenges and everything, but she's, she's doing pretty well right now. How was it that Vail was diagnosed? What was that process for you, that experience? I had been concerned about her development, just like not meeting that, those typical milestones, starting probably about four and a half months old. But I was trying to not be that alarmist parent, you know, like, okay, well, kids will meet their different, you know, milestones at different times and stuff. I remember we had her, I had her six-month pediatrician appointment scheduled, and I it was in a week and I just couldn't wait. I was like, I, something's not right. And so I called and got in early. She said, just come on in. We'll check. I'm sure everything's fine. And then we'll just do her regular month appointment when we have it. And that's when they, you know, agreed that, you know, cause hadn't seen the doctors since she was four months old, agreed that there was concern about her not maybe doing certain things that maybe a six month old should typically be doing. And so then they referred us to neurology that same day. And it all just, I got the diagnosis that day. I mean, I, I got her, I got her diagnosis of leukodystrophy that day, March 14th, 2019. I'll always remember it. I got her diagnosis of leukodystrophy. And then the next day was confirmation that it was cannabis disease. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Had you ever heard of cannabis disease? Never. If it's not too painful for you to share, revisit, first of all, who was in the room, who delivered the diagnosis, and then who talked to you about what it means to have a cannabis diagnosis and live with the cannabis diagnosis? So she had, you know, a rapid MRI in the emergency room. And so we were still in emergency. It was the rounding neurology team who were being seen at UCSF. And so it was a teaching hospital, right? It's a university hospital. So three doctors came in and I didn't 
I actually like really think at the time, like I, I still just, I wasn't expecting something. I, I think that the suggestion of microencephaly or macroencephaly, you know, learning so much about everything still to this point. So I just kind of thought, okay, well, there, there's something they need to tell me. Three doctors came in, but it's a teaching hospital. So that's why there's three doctors. They didn't tell me that day that it was Canavan, but they told me that it was a leukodystrophy. But looking back on the records from it, they did say that it suspected Canavan and another MRI would confirm that, which is what happened the next day. So when they were telling me essentially, you know, what it is that they presume that she has, they were basically describing Canavan. And it was, it is, it was just dismal. You know, everything that they told me was, you know, that my daughter would probably not live beyond 10 years old, that she would not be able to sit or crawl or walk or talk, that she would probably need a feeding tube, that she would potentially lose her vision, and that there's nothing they can do, that there's no treatments right now and so everything is just treating the symptoms so that's uh, that's excuse me um yeah that that's essentially how you know i went from thinking okay well i don't feel like something's not right but i'm sure it's nothing it's nothing terrible right you would never go to this place to then finding out and they were very, I mean, they were so kind. They were so like, you know, just obviously it's not any news that they wanted to deliver, but yeah, it was, I still remember that day. In my experience, certainly in my own personal experience, and then talking with families, diagnosis day is one of the days that figures the most prominently and the most horribly. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very sorry. Thank you. It is also the case that unlike a diagnosis of Canavan 10 years ago, in 2019, and now here we are in 2020, the landscape has changed and there is a gene therapy in development for Canavan specifically. I'm wondering if you could tell us about how you heard about it, how you learned about it, and what you understand about that and how you're thinking about that for, for Vail. I'm trying to remember exactly how I learned that there is a gene therapy. When I first got her diagnosis, you know, like I said, it was, here's, you know, there, there's no treatment and we're really treating symptoms, right? So, and I understand as well that a gene therapy is not a treatment, it's a trial. However, you know, I think, you know, it, it's funny when, when, when I was worried about things initially with, with Vail, I was going online all the time, right? And I, I, I went to my place of what I was afraid she, you know, might have. And then once I got her diagnosis, I didn't, I didn't really go online for a while. I, I didn't want to, I don't know, when you, when you first look up Canavan, there's, I don't know, when you just, when you just do a Google search, it's, um, it's scary, and the first thing that comes up on page one of a Google search is not this gene therapy treatment that might get approved and be ready for trial. 
And so I didn't really go online much. So I think I had other, I think I had some friends that were looking at things and sent me information. There's two that are being researched right now. And so I remember hearing about one of them, but gradually got down the path of learning that gene therapy is being, you know, they've been working on it since 1983. And just now it might be ready for, for, for patient trials this year. So it went from like having essentially no hope for my daughter to there, there's something out there that might, that might work, that might, you know, there's, there's a, there's a shot. Yeah. There's a shot. So a bunch of questions come up for me based on what you just said. What is your primary source of information? Is it other parents? Is it the patient disease group NTSAD or another cannabis group? Who do you rely on or do you feel like you should be able to rely on to get the most up-to-date updates in this rapidly changing landscape? I belong to a, a Facebook group specifically for parents or caregivers of children with Canvan. I think I get a little bit of information from that, but of course there's different, you know, parents are advocating for different things as they should be. And so I wouldn't say that that's where I go for my like, and all be all information. I think it's great source of information. I've, I've definitely reached out to NTSAD and Diana for information, which has been invaluable and, and wonderful. And then I've also reached out to the company directly and their patient advocacy group and their you know client relations team and stuff just to get the information that they're able to provide. What do you feel is the responsibility of companies that have licensed the technology that are working on therapies and trials? What do you feel is their responsibility for communicating with the affected patient group? You know, I think it's open communication as much as they're able to, which has always been kind of made very clear. You know, we'll give you as much information as we're able to give you and then just, you know, honesty, you know, not, not giving information that could, you know, that, I don't know, maybe setting expectations that aren't realistically going to be met, I think is the biggest thing. But obviously, I, I understand that, you know, it's still a work in progress. So they also can't just share everything behind the scenes that they're not able to share. It's a steep learning curve, isn't it? Did you have any knowledge of how trials work and any of this beforehand? Or someone asked me um, before I'd learned about, you know, there's a gene therapy in the work. Someone said, are you looking into gene therapy? And I thought, um, I, no, I don't, I don't know what, you know, and I, I don't know, maybe I should know this. I studied science um, in college, but I'm like, I don't know. No, I'm not looking, you know, and, and also I remember looking at clinicaltrials.gov and, and my, our team here at the, the hospital we're being seen at also had a doctor specifically looking to see if there were trials anywhere in the world that she could be a part of. Because I know, you know, what may not be approved here might be approved in, in other, other parts of the world. And so also I was looking there, but there was nothing, there was nothing there yet, right? Because it's not an approved clinical trial yet. And then just hearing about all the other work that's been done recently with other diseases and neurodegenerative diseases and 
that is, it's amazing. It's, it gives you hope when, again, on March 14th, I had none. What are your intentions and hopes for Vail and this trial? I have said this from day one, from literally March 14th of hearing her diagnosis, that the most important thing for me is a quality of life for Vail. And I still hold to that. I don't want to just do something for myself that will maybe make Vail live, you know, however many years with me, but it's not the quality of life that I think she deserves and that I want her to have. And so as much as I, I hope and I pray that the trial gets approved and that we get, a, you know, that she gets to be a part of it, I still hold to the fact that I want to talk to the doctors and understand what they hope to get out of it. And if that aligns with what I want for her, then by all means, I want to enroll her in it. But I do have that fear that their expectations are not going to be in line with what I hope for her. And then do I have to decide that she, I don't want her to be a part of it. That's, that's hard to imagine that I might, you know, that there's that possibility, you know, because we haven't had those discussions yet. It's hard to imagine that you are going to have to make a decision without any visibility on what actually is going to happen. Exactly. My understanding is, as you said so articulately, the investigators will tell you, they will be required to tell you what their expectations and goals are for this phase of the trial. And they're typically modest in in an early stage trial and asking a parent, to decide whether they want to sign their child up for that in the absence of knowing what impact it could have if they do and what impact it could have if they don't. It's asking an extraordinary amount of parents on top of everything else. Yeah, and there's, I mean, I think with this, for example, when I, you know, it's not, it's not the question of, well, if I don't do this, well, you know, Will she get better on her own? You don't have to ask about that, but it's all those, uh, there's still so many questions. And, and there's so many questions that they probably can't answer because mm-hmm. like you said, you can't make promises on something that's never been tried. And so it terrifies me to think that I could potentially choose to not enroll her because it's not what I see for, for us. Have you thought about who will help you, who will be your sounding board and helping you process and think through this decision? I've asked our neurologist to talk to them with me to understand so that I, I, I guess like our neurologist and um, pediatrician um, who I just think is wonderful, both of them, because I, I want someone to also take the emotion out of it as much as they can. It's a very emotional thing for everybody and kind of just give it to me straight, whether or not from what I've told them that I want for her, if they agree that this might be the decision that we do want to make or don't want to make. So I, I think it's those two main people on her caregiving team. You know, there's the, what does quality of life mean to you and what are your goals for Vail? 
And then what are the risks you're willing to engage with in the absence of um, absolute certainty? Um, that the, you know, the risk assessment for engaging in the trial. Um, it's especially because, well, I, I don't mean to put work, I am projecting onto you, but Canavan, for better and for worse, is not a rapidly progressive, it, you know, it's not like infantile Tay-Sachs where they, they, like what my daughter had, which is so rapidly aggressive and progressive that children will die in early, early childhood. Um, so I, I feel like that, that, conf that in some ways makes it harder for you. Yeah. The other hard thing aside from, you know, it's, it's the projecting of, what's also in the future, right? Look how much has happened in just these last, I don't know, a few years, you know, I know so many strides have been made. So what if I, I what if it, this wasn't in line with my hopes for Vail and I chose not to do it and then in two years, even more strides were made, but had I done it, then she would have been, you know, it, it goes along with that. It's like, if I, if something were to happen now that made me say, this isn't right for us, am I then missing out on what science is capable of in the next year or two years or five mm -hmm. years? Because like you said, her progression is, is slower. So there is still, you know, without anything, they, they say what, you know, 10 years, but every child is different. Have you been told that at least right now with gene therapy, if you have it, it's one and done? I have been told that it's it's a one one and done, but I've also been told that they're hoping to do a, a treatment beforehand so that the body won't reject it if they did do it a second time. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but yet I've been told it's kind of a it's a one. From what, what I know about gene therapy is it's a one time right and then it makes you ineligible for subsequent gene therapies although you could then be eligible for other therapies that are not gene therapy but maybe the, even that will change we don't know you said just now like we don't know what's coming down the pike and so being invited to make these big decisions without um as i say without a crystal ball and I know, I mean, with, with all of these two, the sooner you do it, the better, right? So there's that to weigh too. It's like, okay, well, do you, do you not do it now? Let's say she was approved to be part of the trial, but then they've already gone through, you know, maybe she could do the second round where they've already figured out the correct dosing, you know, on patients and then she has a better shot the second time, but then it's already progressed another year. It, there are things that, there are decisions you never think that you're ever going to have to make in life. I only want to do what's best for her. I know. Uh, and I'm so scared that I might make the wrong decision. I know. I know. Most people don't know, and they shouldn't have to know how awful this is and, and what, it, what kind of decision this is. Parents like us, when parents like you in this moment are faced with so many decisions that we have to make for our children, decisions about 
medical interventions and surgeries, and then even equipment that we want to buy for our children and the types of, you know, medical care we want them to receive. And then, and then we layer on this, this whole other thing around participation in an experimental trial. And on one hand, it's because there's hope that there was never before. When my daughter was alive, it was only palliative care and symptom management. There were no potential interventions to extend her life at all. But in many ways, and, and, and that, was, that was a very bleak, that was like 100% bleak. But it, it didn't burden us with this big decision. Um, and so with the hope that these therapies offer, they're also very, very burdensome, very burdensome. It's a difficult place to be. One of the next steps, once it's approved, is the communities absorbing what the inclusion and exclusion criteria are and understanding whether their child is eligible to even try to enroll. I think that also, that scares me a lot too, because in my mind, I'm waiting for them to say, we're getting approval and now do you want to be in it, right? And so I haven't kind of really thought that other part of what if, what if they say she's not, she can't be, like what if I don't have to make that decision and the decision's made for me? Yeah, it's because in my mind, I'm the one who's going to make that decision, but I know that that's not the case because I'm making every other decision for her, right? This one I don't have any control over if she doesn't meet the criteria that are required for the for the first one i had never really thought about it the way you just said that um that was very beautiful um because as parents of children who can't advocate for themselves yet both for age and other reasons we get to be the ones but what if we don't get to be the ones what does that feel like because we make every other decision for them, right? Yeah. They're not easy decisions, right? I made the decision to move up her surgery and I'm making that decision and I know it's for the best and it's and yeah. I'm okay with it. And I'll advocate and, and, you know, there's no one stronger than a special needs parent, right? But what if you don't get to make that decision? As hard as the decision is going to be to say, yes, I want to participate or no, I don't want her to participate. What if I don't get to make that decision? We've had a conversation with Jamie Ring, who is in patient advocacy, and she's also on NTSAD's board. And we interviewed her about how she thinks about supporting families through this process. And one of the things that she said, which I thought was really helpful, but I'm not really the target for what she said, so I'm wondering if you find this helpful, even though I know you're not there yet. But she said what she tries to do when she's working with patients who do not qualify or want to participate somehow and contribute somehow but have decided they don't want to participate in the trial is to redirect them to another way that they can contribute to research. For example, natural history studies are really, really important. You can't have a trial without endpoints and natural history studies are critical to establishing and assessing endpoints never knew what a natural history study was, right? 
So have you have you participated in a natural history study with Vail or has Vail done that? Yeah, so she's enrolled in a natural history study now. I believe she was patient one. <laughs> and yeah, I mean I am I'm absolutely on board with anything that will help obviously help Vail, but if it can't help Vail, then maybe it can help children down the road. Absolutely. So that that's really important to me. I would participate in the natural history study or something else that would also help them regardless. You know, I think, yeah, I just, anything, obviously they, they can't get to the point they're at now without all the history they have from the past and same and 10 years from now. And yeah, it's, it's so important. Well, let me ask you, have you thought about what you would want to hear from them about their hopes of the benefits for the trial in order for you to know for certain that you would want Vail to participate? That's a great question. There's certain things that I want to, I want Vail to be able to do. You know, I would love for, I, I, it's, it's crazy how, right, things have, my expectations, right, have just completely changed. I would love for her to be able to sit in a wheelchair and, you know, just be a, a child in a, in a wheelchair. Maybe she's, you know, to walk with a walker. I, I watched a, a news report. Actually, it was like a few weeks after getting her diagnosis about a, a different gene therapy that had been done, totally different, different enzyme, different, you know. And I saw the children that received that gene therapy, I think who were between the ages of like five and nine and how they were, you know, I don't remember how much later, maybe it was six months later. And I was like, like that gave me hope. This was before even knowing that there was something down, like being worked on for, for Canavan. And I just thought if Fail could do that, one of the little girls was like swimming assisted, you know, and stuff. I, I would, that is what I want for her. I want her, you know, there's, there's so much, I would love for it to erase everything and make her okay. I'm, I know that's not I'm not going in with the expectations that, that there hasn't been any damage. I don't know that I have like a, okay, well, this needs to be met and this needs to be met because I also know that they're probably not going to be able to answer a lot of those specifics, but there's certain things that I just want for her. I feel like it's kind of one of those things where I'll just, I'll just know, you know, when I talk to the doctors and I tell them what I hope for her, because again, I'm not going to go in with expectations that let's say she's almost two, right? Let's say 20 months, 22 months of this disease have already done to her. I'm not going in with the expectations that, that it's going to reverse everything. So I, part of me is just resting on this hope that when I talk to them, that I'm going to know that, yes, they think that there is that what I hope for her, that they also hope for her. I don't, because, yeah, I don't know. It's just so hard to just make a list. It's like, okay, well, will she be able to do this? No, but if she does this and then how much of the, on that list is important, I just kind of, I don't know. I'm hoping that I'll just know in my heart that like, yeah, there's, this is what is the best thing for her. And also just being able to stay true to myself that if it's not, then, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. Maybe. Well, I mean, none of this is, none of this is fair and none of this is right, but it can 
I know from my own experience and what I've learned and seen with so many others that it can be okay if you get the process right and the deliberation and the time to figure out what matters most to you and people who support you in making a decision to deliver on those goals. And that if you get the process right and feel like you have had the space and time to really think about it, you will not regret your decision. I think that's the big thing, right? Is knowing that you did the best that you could with the information that you had. And that's all, that's all we can ever do, right? Is we're doing the best that we can with knowing what we want for our children. You're just making the best decisions that you can. And they're not decisions we ever thought we were going to make. And you make them, right? I think that's the biggest thing is just, yeah, not, I don't know. It's, it's so hard to not um, also just like, I don't know, there's, there's just a guilt factor that goes along with so much of this. For me personally, I don't know, just with things like, oh, did I not get this equipment for her? I, I, I didn't get it. I should have gotten it sooner. We should have done this. So there's always, I feel like, just a little bit of that. But I don't know, just knowing that you did the best that you could with the information that you had, with the best of intention. So I have another question, Don. Do you feel, in your experience so far, do you feel that the scientific community the early stage researchers and then the the biotech industry, you're having a very emotional experience Mm -hmm. and they understandably are coming at it from a purely scientific standpoint with an appreciation, of course, of the needs of, of patients and families, but they're the science, you're the love and emotion. What has that intersection been like for you, your needs, and what matters to you, meeting how this process works? I think that they're, they're very much aware of the emotional side, I think, of it. And I think that's why they want so badly to probably be able to share more information or knowing everything that the parents are going through. I have found that they've been very empathetic of that. Also understanding that it's science and there's, there's a process and we still have to go along this path, but I have found them to be very, you know, just in tune with that emotional part of it, which helps because, you know, they, they've asked for, you know, pictures of her to share with the team that, you know, we'll remind the, you know, people who are working to what, what, what they're working for. Right. Because we all go to work, we do our thing, we go home. Right. But they're working to save lives. Right. So here's what you're working for. And I thought that was really, really special. And I believe that, you know, I, and I know with the other um, advocacy group as well, very connected to the families and, and I, I think you kind of have to be in this situation, right? We're not, we're not testing the wheels on a cart to make sure, you know, I don't know. Like I'm just saying like there, it's, it, there's so much emotion behind it, but they're also working so hard for a very specific purpose. But I think that they, I do truly think that they know that and they, they, they 
you know, know how important that is. I really appreciate your time and your speaking so openly and honestly about how you think about this. And I think that will be, it will be a great gift to other families and to clinicians and industry who are all going to be paying attention to this. And it's just a real pleasure to meet you personally for me. It's an honor to meet you. Thank you for listening. For more stories and conversations, as well as videos, downloadable guides, and decision-making resources in English and Spanish, visit CourageousParentsNetwork.org. CPN is available 24-7 for parents and providers as they strive to provide the best care for the child and the entire family.